I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's episode, Smoke and Mirrors. You're familiar with Rick Rolling? You know the phenomenon? Yeah, isn't that that thing where, like, you click on a link that says that it's going to be something exciting, but then when you get there, it's just a video of Rick Astley singing. Never going to give you up. Suddenly you're dancing around the living room with your whole family on a nostalgia trip to the 80s. And it delights everyone. No, I don't think it delights people. I mean, I think people are disappointed. It works more like you're at a dull business meeting and in the middle of a PowerPoint slide where click here and it's like, never going to give you up, never going to let you down. No, no, Gregor, you've got it wrong. I mean, it's like something like, hey, click here for like a lost uh, Seinfeld episode or whatever that's never been seen before. And then you click on it and instead it's just that, that stupid never going to give you up. That is a great song. Anyway, here was the idea I had for you. I got to thinking about Rick Rolling, And then I thought, how are we going to get clicks? How are we going to get eyeballs on Johnny.com? How are we going to get people to your site? If we put out there, hey, click here to hear Jonathan Goldstein's radio hour, you know how many people are going to click? None. That's how many well, are going to Well, you know, click. get a few clicks at least. Now, we put up a link that says, click here to watch adorable kittens play Beethoven. Click here to learn wonderful recipes for lasagna. Anything non-Jonathan Goldstein related, right? Okay, and then they get to it and... Boom, they're taken to your site. It's a redirect. It's a classic Rickroll. I call it a Goldie roll. Uh-huh. Make millions of dollars with gold. Beautiful girls in bikinis on a jet ski. Click here to find out more. Boom! Wednesday. I think perhaps today is the day to wash the dishes in my sink. You know what I mean? But don't, don't you think people will feel annoyed at having been deceived? Doesn't matter. The point is they came in the door. But We're talking about foot traffic. Eyeballs, my friend. Clicks. Look, people associate my name with, you know, a certain level of quality and forthrightness. I mean, that seems like, kind of like a cheap trick Wait, in a way. In, in what environment are people associating your name with anything? You're nobody to anybody. You don't exist. You're invisible. I'm trying to put you on the map. I don't think this... Look at Rick Astley. He was in the dumps. And now he's back on the map, all because of Rick Rowling. Uh-huh. I heard in the industry they're talking about a duets album. They're going to get Rick Astley out there with MC Hammer. Okay, Gregor, th- look, thank you for the good intentions, but I'm not interested in your Goldie Roll idea. All right, got to be honest with you, Johnny. This wasn't my idea. Wait, what do you mean it wasn't your idea? It was the CBC. They just got in touch with me. What? The CBC? I was as surprised as you were. At first, I thought maybe you were injured, because I think you put me on that form for contacting next of kin. My first thought was that there had been an accident at work, that you choked to death on a microphone. How can a person choke to death on a microphone? Because your mic technique is terrible. I tell you every day, get your face away from the microphone. You're spitting all over the microphone. You're going to swallow the microphone. Okay. Anyway, they were expressing some concerns about your digital media presence. And? They want to replace your show with a French dub of The Littlest Hobo. They want to put a French version of a 1970s television show on the radio about a silent dog. But I think we can shut this whole thing down if you just get a little bit more proactive about your digital media strategy. Well, what what, what do we need to do? We're not going to use the show's content. We're going to leverage borrowed affinity. You know what that means? No. Click here to be better in bed, impress people at work, be more attractive to the ladies, be more attractive to the guys. They click it, and then Thursday. Pasta again. Well, I mean, I guess there's a tradition of this kind of, you know, noble hucksterism, kind of like in, in the vein of Benjamin Conkling. Who the hell is Benjamin Conkling? 
Well, he, he, he was this avant-garde silent film director from the turn of the century who was known to have, you know, used this bait-and-switch approach uh, to his ad campaign. What are you talking about? No, I'm, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, that I'm amenable to your idea. Do you think I have time to waste hearing about Benjamin Conkling and auteurs of the silent film era? We're trying to get you into talkies, Johnny. No, I mean, I mean I'm You're just... You're talking nonsense. What are you on, some kind of cold and flu medication? We're going to get Goldie rolling. Sing with me, Johnny. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down. Who was Benjamin Conkling? To answer that, let's journey back to 1915. Imagine, if you will, a movie palace. Bronze railings, marble pillars, and gold-leafed ceilings. You lean back in your plush red seat and gaze up at the screen as an upright piano starts to play. The piano accompanies a black-and-white silent film. The celluloid flickers to life, revealing a gorilla sitting atop a lit stove. His bottom is being singed. The scene lingers on for several uncomfortable seconds, when finally, ripping off the gorilla head, the man in the suit reveals himself, weeping. A title card appears on the screen. It reads, Though the burn of the stove on my thinly costumed posterior is indeed painful, it does not come close to the pain of knowing I am alone in the universe. That scene is from Conkling's first film, and though it was titled Frisky the Clown Goes Fishing, it contained no fishing, no clown, and not an ounce of friskiness. When audiences came to see it, they thought they were in for a two-reeler of uproarious slapstick comedy, full of pratfalls and frantic chase scenes. But what they got instead was a stern, nihilistic treatise. One reviewer at the time called Frisky the Clown about as entertaining as the mumps. Though today the name Benjamin Conkling is little more than a footnote in the annals of film history, in the early part of the century, he enjoyed the backing of studio giants Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. In his 20s and still living at home, an anemic, bespectacled Benjamin spent all of his time locked up in his bedroom, filling notebooks with poetry that hardly anyone could decipher. At her wit's end, Benjamin's mother sought out the help of her older brother, famed movie mogul Louis B. Mayer. Together, they came up with a way to get Benji out of the house. Mayer would give him a five-picture deal. In the burgeoning era of film, the studios couldn't churn movies out fast enough. Plus, how bad could his nephew's films be? The Conkling deal would prove to be one of the most disastrous decisions of Mayer's career. Over several months, Conkling produced a series of two reelers that were maudlin and often grueling, forcing MGM to enlist the full power of its marketing team to trick audiences into seeing them. Take, for example, 1915's Slap Happy. Lobby cards for the film were printed up showing dozens of people in a streetwide pie fight, but in fact, only one single pie was thrown throughout the entire 24-minute running time. 
A close-up follows, revealing a cream-covered face. It is weeping. After 12 excruciating minutes of tears mingling with cream, a title card appears on the screen. It reads, Why would you humiliate me in this way? I thought you loved me. While other comedies from the era were frenetically paced, a reviewer from the Los Angeles Herald described Slap Happy as, quote, slow, like the characters are treading through porridge. Whoever made this piece of fimble-famble is off his chump. But the rejection of his work only egged Conkling on, strengthening his sense of alienation. Perhaps Conkling's most surreal work was his penultimate film, Boys Night Out. Billed to moviegoers as a raucous ramble in a Rolls Royce, it was anything but. It begins with a static shot of an empty room. After several long seconds, a Murphy bed flops out of the wall. There is a man inside, wearing a nightcap. A title card reads, My alarm clock failed to go off, and I have overslept. Just then, a coffin falls from the ceiling, barely missing the man. The man in the bed, nearly crushed to death, leaps up and, with a furious look on his face, charges at the camera, knocking it over. Now on its side, the camera continues to film as the man in the nightcap chases around and around the bed an anemic, bespectacled young man wearing a director's beret. He clutches the hat to his head with both hands and runs out of the frame. Is the man in the beret Conkling himself, accidentally filmed in a near-fatal onset mishap? Or is the breaking of the fourth wall by design an example of comedic postmodernity? As with all of Conkling's films, it was a complete financial failure. Just after ripping apart his director's beret with his bare hands, his Uncle Louie had Conkling removed from the MGM lot by security. And so it was that Conkling's fifth and final film sat in MGM's basement unfinished for more than a decade. The name on the cans read, Age of Unreason. It was found by an archivist who mistook Conkling's depiction of existential loneliness for a comedy along the lines of Chaplin's City Lights. In a bid to salvage their last investment in Conkling, MGM decided to put out the film with a new title, Flopsy's Kerfuffle. And while Conkling had intended his final and most difficult work to be scored with Chopin's Nocturne Opus No. 9, the studio instead slapped on a bouncy pianola tune called The Sassy Waltz, but here, through the power of radio, let's grant Conkling his wish. Imagine, if you will, a harlequin bathing in an old-fashioned four-legged tub. He scrubs his back with a scrub brush, a dark, forlorn look upon his face. A title card appears. It reads, I must bathe because once thrown into the world, one is responsible for concealing the odor of one's slowly rotting flesh. The shot continues for several moments, when suddenly, the floor gives out, 
causing the tub to fall into the apartment below, where a man eats dinner at a fold-out table, alone. But before long, the tub falls through the floor of that apartment too, landing in a room where a couple argues over a crying baby. And then, onto the apartment below that, where a woman attempts to feed what looks like a dead cat. All the while, the Harlequin's expression remains unmoved. Flopsy's kerfuffle was a success. It was rumored that Conkling, now an insurance salesman, upon hearing that his film work was finally getting its proper due, came back to Hollywood to sit in on a screening. One can imagine him at the back of the theater, cowering in his seat, looking on in disdain and horror as everyone around him hooted and hollered at the misfortunes of his Harlequin. I got into show business looking for a home. As a kid, I was pathologically shy and depressed, and I knew the real world wasn't for me. How do you mean? I just, I just didn't see me with a job and functioning and owning a car. I just had no self-esteem. But then when I'd see these goofy character actors, weirdos, like the guy in Dog Day Afternoon who chickened out or the deaf-mute from the last picture show. I'd sit up in my seat, go, they're like me. i go, I could be one of those guys. I could be one of the weirdos. So I went with my older sister to a comedy club, and someone said, Freddie Prince, Jimmy Walker, they, they, they went on stage, got discovered for The Tonight Show, then they got to be on a TV show. I said, okay. So even though I was shy, I told myself as long as no one I knew was in the audience and I didn't look at them, I only had to do it one time, and then I'd get on The Tonight Show. And then I'd be on a TV show like Happy Days or whatever. And that actually ended up becoming my act where I didn't look at the audience, my head was down, and many of my jokes were morbid, just about death and cousins that died. And, and I developed this act, and I was allowed to hang out at comedy clubs. And this Eddie Money song, Two Tickets to Paradise, was going through my head. I thought I was in. Little by little, the character I came up with on stage morphed into cameos on sitcoms. For example, on Raymond, I played his mopey cousin. On Scrubs, I'm a hypochondriac. On Friends, I was an annoying waiter. So I became the nervous, nebbishy guest star on all these shows. But I never brought on as a regular on one of these shows. I felt like a foster kid going from show to show, hoping one would keep me on. So I never really found that showbiz home I was looking for. But then something really exciting happened. I finally got to a point where I was a type, you know, a showbiz type, where there's a thing in L.A. called the breakdowns, 
when there's an audition, let's say How I Met Your Mother wants an audition, they say they describe the part they're looking for. The agents get the breakdowns and submit their clients to audition. But then there was one where it said, uh, we want a nervous Fred Stoller type. and Like it actually said your name, your, your actual name? Yes, yes. It said, we want Fred Stoller type. So my agent calls me up going, this is good. You uh, got to a point where you've established yourself where you're a type. And and I said, great. You know, that's the ultimate when when people create parts for you in mind, you know. But then uh, my agent said, Fred, you have to audition for it. I said, what? It, it said Fred, my, it, it said me. It's a Fred Stoller type. And I said, I'm Fred Stoller. He said, it's a formality. They're big fans, you know. So I went there thinking this is the biggest no-brainer in the world. So I'm in the booth, and you have to do what's called a slate. A slate is where before the part, you read, you go, let's say if I'm auditioning for a buffalo, Fred Stiller is buffalo, then you do the audition. So I had to say Fred Stoller as Fred Stoller type for the audition. Did anybody find that odd? I found it odd. I, I, I read it, and I, I felt I was reading it as me, and and then I heard I didn't get it. You, you didn't get the part? No. A, a part that was basically written for you? No. I. It was very humiliating. I mean, I've had other things where they go, they're big fans of yours, just go there, it's a formality. I go there, it's a cattle call, there's about 40 other actors to audition for Nebish number six. But this is the first time my name was used to describe what they were looking for, and I didn't get it. It was very confusing. It was like flattering and being smacked in the face at the same time. It's like saying, you're a type, you've arrived, but wait at the line with everyone else, you schmuck. You know, it's like I, I got as famous as I can without doing me any good. You know, where, where we recognize you, you're unique, but I, but I wasn't good enough to be Fred Stoller. That, that's the thing about this showbiz career. It, it can take away your confidence of being yourself. So then I wrote a book called Maybe We'll Have You Back, The Life of a Perennial TV Guest Star, about these experiences, about auditioning for a Fred Stoller type, about looking for a home. And I was so excited to have this book, thinking, you know, I'm telling my story. This is me. I couldn't wait for my book to come out, and it was going to be on Kindle. And I looked at Amazon, and I see, oh, there was an audio book. And then I, I checked back the next day, I see narrated by Ray Chase. I go, what? What? I didn't get the job reading about my own life or my book. I finally arrived thinking this is my story, my thing, my home I created, my book, my story. Someone else is reading the audio and doing an impression of me. He got the gig. Is this guy, is this Ray Chase guy, is he like a Fred Stoller type? If you listen to it, which I listen to the sample, it's almost like sounds like a robot going, yeah, I have been on Friends and many shows. <laughs> it is, it, one day maybe I will find a home. 
but I am the guy that Matt LeBlanc looked at and said, you've been on everything. And I, I actually laughed because I said, this is so the book. There should be a chapter in the book about not getting the audio gig for the book. <laughs> so I, I learned to laugh at it, but it was kind of maddening. I'm the guy that auditions for himself and doesn't get his own audio book. But I'm not bitter. I'm not... I, I managed to, to get by my life without, you know, being in a cubicle and, and you know, and um, the fact I haven't hit the home run makes me appreciate, like last week I worked on a, a silly kid show where I'm a ghost as a teacher and it's corny, it's for kids, it will do nothing for my career, but, but I, you appreciate just all the little things and the free food and kids recognizing me and lighting up and... You know, I mean, as I get older, my goal is to not do things that make me miserable. So if I'm on a show where people are appreciative of me and really nice, that I learned is success. The point of a promise is to make it. What happens after that isn't my problem. But you have to keep a promise. Otherwise, it's just a lie. I make promises I never had the intention of keeping all the time. And it makes people really happy. But then when you break the promise, then they get really sad, right? Yeah, I try not to be around for that part. I'll give you for an example. My Auntie Norma was in town, and she was sad to be leaving. Uh-huh. So I promised I would write to her, but I never did. Well, that probably made her really sad, no? Eh, she probably forgot all about it anyway. Uh-huh. Another time, I told the boy I was going to meet him at a movie, so I told him to be there on Saturday at 1 o'clock on the dot, mm-hmm. and he, he was so happy. You should have seen his face. And then you, and then you... And then I didn't show up. But wait, but so you just left him waiting for you like that? That that seems so mean. But, but at least he had something nice to look forward to. But now, I mean, you know, if you keep breaking promises, then you end up losing people's trust. Yeah, I guess you're right. It has gotten me into some trouble lately. Oh, has it? Well... Two weeks ago, my friend went on a trip in Europe, and while she was gone, my friend asked me if if I could keep her pet snail, you know, babysit. Is that something that kids do now? They keep pet snails? Yeah. So I promised her I would take care of her snail while she was away. And and how, how does one take care of a snail? Um, well, you know... Feed it, which I forgot to do. You forgot to feed it? Turns out that snails are really easy to forget. (laughs) Also, you're not supposed to let their terrarium get too moist, but I I accidentally spilled some orange juice in there by accident, and it died. How could you even tell it was dead? Well... I don't want to go too much into detail, but let's just say when I picked it up, there was orange juice coming out of the shell. 
<laughs> so what did you do when your friend came back from Europe? Well, I gave her the snail and I told her he was still alive. How, how could she how could she fall for that? They don't move around really much. I mean, they just sit there. You can't really tell the difference anyway. The thing is now when I go over to her house and she takes out her snail to play with, I, I just feel, like, really bad. I, I could see that. I've got to watch her play with this dead snail. But when she's not looking, I'll, I'll kind of scoot the snail around, along the carpet a few <laughs> inches. And then when she turns back, I'll be like, hey, look, the snail's moved. It's great. He's taking morning jogs. A morning jog. And sometimes also I'll rip out little bites of the lettuce leaves. So it looks like Gary's been eating. The snail's name is Gary. Yeah. So what's the game plan? You're, you're just going to pretend that this snail is alive for the rest of your life? I mean, don't, don't you feel bad tricking your friend like that? Uh, well, I do, but at the same time... I saved her a lot of pain. On Wiretap today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich, Nelika Dager, and Fred Stoller, author of Maybe We'll Have You Back, The Life of a Perennial TV Guest Star. For more, visit fredstoller.net. Wiretap is produced by Mirabert Wintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Today's episode is dedicated to the memory of Peter Wintonic. Subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. Wait at the line with everyone else, you schmuck. Confront the line jumpers at the club with every ring of your phone. <laughs> <laughs>